the things we do for the commitments and things that we believe in and love is an un and is is un, unbelievable how far we'll go. And sometimes it's ungratifying work because no one's going to pat you on the back and say good job and thank you for doing what you do. But you know who did was the folks that were in the senior center that was up the street from Saturday Dinette that would come and say, "I have a dollar twenty-five. Can I get a breakfast plate? Absolutely. Take a seat at the bar. We got you." I think this is like the critical question in any cook's journey: Why the knives? <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I'm still asking myself that. To be very honest, <laughs> I can't even lie. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. I couldn't be more excited about my guest and dear friend, collaborator, co-conspirer, and culinary all-star, Suzanne Barr. Since I launched this show, Suzanne's been in my top three. Like right away, I was like, I have to get Suzanne to this audience, to these people. And the point of Better was always to share these conversations. So this is one that I've been highly anticipating. Suzanne, welcome. How are you? Cheers, cheers, cheers. Peace, peace, peace. Love, love, love. I am in a space. I am in a very sunny apartment in uh, Sunrise, Florida, but I am well. I My head is lifted. I'm feeling really ignited by this conversation we're about to step into and welcome, you know, all those that are listening to be a part of it, um, sitting back and just letting letting these thoughts pass through and, you know, opening themselves up to some new ideas and some experiences that they may or may not have heard of. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm, I'm so grateful for your presence today and your energy as always. There's not been a single conversation in the five-ish years that we've known each other that hasn't enlightened and enlivened me. So I'm excited to let all that happen today. And just to set a little bit of a base for folks who don't know you, Suzanne is truly one of North America's most respected chefs. She's a just absolutely stellar advocate for social justice and food justice. And when we say food justice, we mean everything from food apartheid through to not food deserts. We don't say that anymore. We just say food apartheid straight out. And then all of the different things from people of color's inclusion, the communities around, and as well as a, an author, a published incredible author. And we're going to talk about the book today as well. But outside of all of those things, how do you like to best introduce yourself? Um, you know, I think the one word that I'm, I've, I've really kind of wanted to take on this year is a, a creative being. You know, I think that it was a hard thing to um, acknowledge for myself as being a chef that I was an artist. 
um, even though I went to art school. But I think the role of an artist meant to me like your palette, it was your your creative flow, your process. And it took me many years to kind of get to that light that that's what we do as chefs and that's what we do as creative persons. So it's not just being a chef, it's not about being an artist, it's about being a creative being. And I think that that creative being inside of me comes out in different forms and it, it could be, you know, sharing in a, in, in, in a storytelling, it could be sharing on a podcast, it could be writing something for an article in that magazine publication, it could be just making a, a cup of tea for a family member, whatever that might be, a creative being is someone that really is constantly giving back and, and with a lot of love and a lot of commitment and intention. And that's exactly what my role is on this planet. Um, at 45 years, I'm going to keep doing it. And so many years ahead um, that I look to to see where it's going to take me in, in all of my evolutions. And everything I hear there, I hear permission above all, right? And, and yeah. a ownership. Um, we work in industries, particularly in creativity and 100% in culinary, that can be so toxically exclusionary. Right? If you're not if you're not classically trained, you're not a chef in some circles. And some of the best chefs I've worked with come from the walk on the street front or from mom's kitchen or from the pizza spot in the mall. And so as part of your leaning into your creative genius and, and really owning all of that is passing through that imposter syndrome and that toxicity. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember sitting in my, my, my parents' kitchen growing up as a kid and seeing my dad like create these like one of a kind incredible dishes that for him was was just like his gift to us. It was a mm. gift to us to see him in his work. You know, he would go to work two jobs, work very hard, come home exhausted, but still find the time to put together this incredible taste of 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 what he feels is our culture, his culture, to express his love to us. And, you know, whether my dad was a, you know, a chef in, in, his, in his own right as that title working executive chef, he was never that, but he was definitely the first person that I knew as an artist to create something from, from a space of just passion and love. And I think that, you know, it's hard to, to say that you wear this badge of being something that people want you to be, to be. But I think ultimately when it comes from a place of true, honest love and you can be honest with yourself and what you're doing and, you know, not every day it's going to feel like it's real. Not every day it's going to feel intentional. You know, you, you question like you wake up in the morning and you're like, damn, like I actually don't I want to go back to sleep. I get mm -hmm. that, too. And I think allowing yourself to do that because you you know more than you think, you know, and a lot of this has already been written and a lot of this is we're just flashing through this again you know as our ancestors once did so um yeah it's it's definitely something i grapple with you know um throughout my career and i i know it's something i'll i'll be confronted with quite quite a lot more in my years to come absolutely it's uh so i've watched you run brigades from the dinette from saturday dinette your original spot through to true true um, I've worked online with you multiple times. And for those of you at home, I think what gets confused is there's like a graduation ceremony as a chef, right? Like there's a secret society where they put the big white hat on us and in the coat and they call it a day. And the fact of the matter is there's a hundred different routes to being the chef. And the chef is simply one thing and one thing only, which is the chief of the kitchen. 
which is the leader of the kitchen. That's all it means. So if you are in a position in the kitchen where people are trusting you with not getting burnt, stabbed, being able to get plates out on time, handle the guests, handle the ordering, handle the management, handle the emotions, handle the stress, you are the chef. There's not any in-between on that. So for all of my young cooks out there who are running brigades, do not be afraid of the title. It's, it's absolutely yours and take it um, yeah. in stride. And I think even those titles, those those roles that we have been that we've slid into, because of of this historical consideration of why a chef is a chef and and why certain positions are necessary. I think we're even um, we're resisting that, and I think that that's an admirable thing. I think that we have to 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 give space for so much resistance in the fact that we want to get rid of some of these titles because these yeah. titles equate to this this belief that. Because you are this role, because you slid into this position, now you must have this power. And that power for most people are, is used in, in misuse. And, mm. and people can, can, can lead them their own self on a path of thinking that, well, now that I'm this, I am complete. And now that I'm this, I can rule you. And now that I'm this, you must listen to me. And I think yeah. that, you know, disruptors in, in, in any spaces are welcome to be able to challenge the roles and the titers, titles that these archaic systems have put in place because we all know that we are ready for some major changes in, in all of these spaces, but particularly in the kitchen, I'm ready and I'm, I'm willing and able to make those steps forward and to be a part of that movement. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to yes and and go back to what I was sharing about witnessing you in the kitchen and my favorite quote unquote cooks in the kitchen is that responsibility of allowing others to flourish and foster the underneath and with and beside. And so it's one giant yes. learning space. And when we yes. say, when we run kitchens, we always jokingly say, I'm the first to, to wash the dishes. The responsibilities yes. and the role is the first on the mop. <laughs> the first, you know, you're responsible for the bills and um, you're responsible for certain things. But really, truly, it is about bringing up a collaborative culture. And we've always run our kitchens that way. Um, in a respectful and, and deeply acknowledging manner. And I've been working in the kitchen since you know late 90s where chefs were like, don't call me that. My name is Nico. Don't call me that. My name is you know Richard. And, right. and have bucked, and have bucked <laughs> against it. that for 20 plus years and said, I don't want that title because it reminds me, it's a traumatic, traumatic trigger for me without using mm -hmm. that language of the systems that I came up in that were very abusive. And yeah. we, there's a lot to that. Yeah, yeah, no, and I've seen you in in when I visited um, the 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 kitchen last year, and just getting the 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 history of the neighborhood and then the space itself, it just came over me that this is a space of so much uh, caring and um, dignity, and how and that's such a big part of the work that you have continued to do, and it's always an honor to 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 see you in your in your in your spaces and. To listen to you know what you have to say because I think that a lot of people depend and rely on you know on on, on people like yourself um, and myself and the many others that are out there that are are just we're just speaking our truth we're speaking our stories and we're not holding back and I think that you know a lot of people find their own personal um, connection to that and understanding of that and it's and sometimes it's scary because. You, you don't always know where you're going, but I think that you just, I feel like in, in everything that you've done, Mark, like you've just continued on your path 
And it's maybe not always been the path that you expected, but you found your way back on it. And you're still carving out that path for yourself. Every single day, moment to moment, you're carving your, your path out. I appreciate you so very much. And I feel like I'm just, I'm beaming. You can't see me on, on the radio right now, <laughs> but I'm beaming the reflection because in all leaders that we, that we deeply respect and that we're in network with and that we, we support, we are aware that we are on this journey and we are participants in it, but that the path is also somewhat chosen for us if we're willing to listen and, and to sit in it. And there's no greater honor than to be in service. And when we come back, we're going to dig further into not only why you learned to cook, but black food is resistance. I want to talk yeah. about the book. Yeah. I want to talk about the diaspora. I want to talk about all sorts of other things that really make Suzanne Barr tick. We're on better. Keep it locked. We'll be right back with Suzanne Barr. Welcome back to Better. We are with my guest and dear, dear, dear friend, Suzanne Barr. Chef Suzanne Barr is in the building, and we were discussing creativity, our leadership roles, the importance and the intention that goes behind it. And what I wanted to start this particular segment with was why you learned to cook. I think this is like the critical question in any cook's journey. So wh why, why the knives? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm still asking myself that to be very honest. <laughs> I can't even lie. Um, I, I am asking that myself that, you know, my, um, my, my love for food has always been there. Um, you know, as a, as a chubby kid growing up, like I love to eat. My sister and I used to do, make the craziest sandwiches and just like, totally create like our masterpieces in our mind of like, we are whipping up something that anybody in their, in their, in their, in their life would want to have this. And, you know, food was, um, food was a, a, a sense of healing. It was a sense of uh, loneliness, sadness. It was a sense of joy. It was a sense of togetherness and connection with my sister. Um, it was also a sense of celebration because it was really mm. big in my house my parents constantly through events and parties in our house. And so we always had people eating and my mom was always cooking. My dad was always cooking. Something was, somebody was on the grill and somebody was on the DJ, on the DJ deck. So music, food, that, that, that story is like embedded in me and it's a part of who and what I am now as a chef. And so I think my decision to fall in this, into this life, as I like to say, <laughs> and I choose, I chose this life because um, I felt that my connection to food and and the the healing power of food um, for me was 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 there as I shared before. But I think now more than ever, it it had a, a really strong connection to my to my love for my mom. I was her caretaker when she was diagnosed of pancreatic cancer, and during my time that I was you know attempting to feed her. I did not know how to cook. Mm. I didn't know what she needed. Mm. I didn't understand what it meant to not have the taste and the craving for something you have eaten your whole life. I didn't understand that she was um, battling with her taste buds and the lack thereof, and they were they were they were leaving her, and right. other things were just her her cravings weren't the same and 
food left us with this very stale and bitter and um, unpleasant thought because it just wasn't the thing anymore to make, to bring her joy and to bring me joy. And so after she passed away and years upon years later, I, you know, started to explore what my connection, my spiritual connection to food and my role as a, as a caregiver in this lifetime. And what that meant was that I needed to probably go back a little bit deeper into myself and into the things that brought me joy. And, you know, still to this day, you know, if I'm having a stressful kind of day, I always resort back to baking something. Mm. And that is because it's a bit of healing for me to be able to disconnect from everything else that's going on and to be able to just not just get into like this. People say, oh, when you're cooking, you get into this mechanical mode like a robot. You're just like flipping a burger. You're putting cheese. You're moving in this orderly fashion like like we do on the line. But I think there's like this whole process. It's a be- it's a beautiful symphony of movement. It's a connection to your body. It's a connection to your to sometimes a spirit that comes with you mm-hmm. to just be able to pour something, stir something, need something, you know, blend something, uh, saute something, cook slow, and take your time and smell the essence, taste the, the taste the levels, taste the textures, feel the textures. And these are the things for me that became very present of, I think I can explore that. I think why not explore that? See where this takes you. Yeah. Um, and I I went to an ashram uh, for a weekend getaway that my best friend had given to me. And I opened my life back up to what it meant to be a caregiver and understanding food in a different way and how do I could apply that into my everyday life and make it a lifestyle, not just a work, a job, a career path, but a lifestyle and a lifestyle that was was giving and receiving. But it was also like this healing connection to food. And I think that's, you know, a big part of what has led me. And I've had I've left it. I, you know, I left that kind of belief and that passion of healing with food because I got into the whole capitalistic way of running and getting food out and making food and making money and having running restaurants. And I've always tried to find a reset button to get me back to why I turned to the knives and why I decided to go down this path and, and I to continue on this path. And I think this path is kind of taking me now on this journey of thinking about the, the future, the future of how we're going to eat, yeah. the future of what land is going to look like and who governs over land and who gets access to land and how we're going to eat the type of foods and materials and the tools and the skills. These are the things for me are such a big part of the work that I'm, I'm working and looking and yearning for right now. So it's beautiful. And so much in that, but taking it back to your mom and stepping back into that space of giving care and nourishment and then a, that's directly relative to what you're describing as flow state, right? And so saying like, we have so much fear around food and of course, both of our missions and our dear friend, Joshna Maharaj, who's going to be a guest of the show very soon. Um, we love you, Joshna. Love our, you. Our, our focus <laughs> solely is in demystifying and, you know, we're, we're like masseuses in that way. It's like you've got tension here around what it means to saute and you've got tension here around what it means to just like freestyle use ingredients and, 
and to, to get comfortable. And so we start with teaching kids. That's, you know, my, my cornerstone. We love that portion of it because you don't actually have to teach anybody to cook. We inherently, it's, it's generational knowledge. It's in there. It's unlocking it. And so I love about the way that you also teach and hold space is your deep belief in representation um, and the diasporic ingredients and the diaspora. When we talk about the diaspora, we're talking about the geographical representation from places that are underrepresented in the cuisines for the people who are living in different spaces. And Absolutely. it's so incredibly, incredibly important. And I think one of my favorite recipes of yours um, showed up in a book that I also love, which is called Black Food. And you did a jerk chicken ramen, which is, <laughs> you know, people get, they get very uptight about classical preparation and execution, but learning how to cook is so that you can meld different executions for people you care about, whose palates you care about, um, and food unlocks history, it unlocks emotion, it unlocks care. Um, there's so much there internally, externally, in relationship. So tell, tell us a little bit about your thoughts around black food as resistance, about the diasporic uh, ingredients, et cetera. Yeah, you know, um, that opportunity that, you know, to, to, to be a part of that body of work was, was truly um, it still is this amazing, like unbelievable gift that, you know, I was to be a part of that. And Brian is someone that I truly look up to and inspired by his work over the many years that I've been reading his books and using his tool books as, as, as offerings in the kitchen. Um, you know, when he, when he sent me the email to ask what was I going to contribute, you know, I gave him like four different dishes and I was just like, I don't know what you're going to make, but like, I know for me, you know, my, the food that I want to make right now in my life has, has a story attached to it. And, and, and even to the point where when I make it and when I walk it to the table or when I offer it to someone or send a recipe to someone, it's always prefaced with like a little blurb about why that recipe is so significant to me Mm. and the significance of that recipe in, in my life as a Jamaican Canadian now American, but non American person. <laughs> and, you know, like I grew up in a, in a Jamaican household where my parents, you know, had to seek out the ingredients that they grew up eating. It was always the, this, this extra effort. My mom had to go to the, 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 this one shop that Caribbean people went to in the neighborhood and you had to get there early enough to wait in line to get inside. Mm-hmm. And then you had to stand the smells that were in there because there was always <laughs> some stale blood on the floor or, or fish that had just been cleaned. And, and, then, and then it's being brined in a bucket full of, of just all oh, this iodized salt. And then there was like the plantains that were still super green that were perfect for your green banana provisions that go in the pot that sit on the stovetop, you know? And when I sent the the recipe to him, I really thought a lot about my trip to Asia the first time that I went to uh, Korea and how much of Korea had inspired me in a way that was like, I hadn't hadn't really anticipated. You know, I I had a couple friends that, you know, were Korean. I had a roommate that was from... um, from China, you know, I had experiences with ramen, but not really understanding like how, and, and it's such a far country from 
any place I've ever been to, the tradition, the culture, the people, everything. But, you know, this particular dish was something that was quite important to me to tell a story of how the power of, you know, the diaspora, the connection of food, the connection of people, mm. and the connection of flavor and the process and how, how our resistance to how and why we st first started making jerk to the resistance and the reason why they first started creating ramen and noodles. It just correlated in a way that it told such a bigger story that was like, fuck, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that was bigger than like me. It was bigger than my aunts. It, it was a story that needed to be heard mm -hmm. and it, it was a story to be shared. And it was a story that I knew would unlock a few doors and gates and, and unfasten some people into their own relationship to Asian food into into Japanese food into Chinese culture into into Korean foods and and, and traditions and I just it, it kind of landed came to me um, a few years prior to even submitting it because I had an incredible student from George Brown College that I was partnered up with and she and I wanted to compare our traditions mm. and create something that had so much bold flavor and and so much to say about our two different cultures and the people that are embedded into these food and the cultures and the tradition of making these things. Yeah. This is going to unlock a conversation piece that people are going to be like, wait, what? Jerk chicken and ramen? Like <laughs> Talk to me. <laughs> if you're listening and you don't want that right now, I think, you know, you can go ahead and switch the dial. You found yourself in the wrong place. Um, you are on better. I am with Chef Suzanne Barr, and what we were just discussing, truly, we've we've gone from creativity to food as political resistance. And when we say political resistance, I don't want you to think that this is just for you know the poli sci master students. I'm talking about resisting the current political systems. Period. And in resisting them, there has to be an us. We always say there is no us in them, there only is us. And in these dishes that you're describing and this work that you're describing, it is the great equalizer and combiner when we realize how much makes us the same. The fight behind rum and the fight behind jerk, the fight behind these things that we realize is like, wait, you, your people went through that too? That happened exactly. with you? Oh my yes. God, that's, that's where we all are in this particular space if we're not in that very small percentile. So we are going to be right back. Obviously, we're just warming up. You're on Better. I am Mark Brand. We are with Chef Suzanne Barr, and we are kicking ass and taking names. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. You know, I always want so much more time. And the good news is we are going to get some more time today. And so wherever you listen to the extended innings, the extra 12-inch remix, as Ra Goddess said the in a remix. previous episode, <laughs> <laughs> the 12-inch extended mix will be wherever you consume podcasts, of course. And we're, we're going to go. We're going to definitely go there today. But right now, if you're tuned in on the radio, you are in your vehicle, you are in your comfy chair, I want to talk about true true so the segue goes to the dinette there's so much work that's done there we'll fill in the blanks on that in the extra innings but then you go to open true true which is a distillation of all of the work that you want to achieve around mental health around training women fleeing violence all of that give us a little bit of that when we initially opened the doors and even before if we can back up even further back 
Please. you know, to like when I first arrived in Toronto, you know, more than eight years ago, and I arrived with my partner and who was my boyfriend at the time and eventually now is my husband and our desire to have a brick and mortar out of a raw, empty space and to convert this space into this like, you know, arts, food center and and the thought that yes this is what we're going to do we're going to create meals dinners we're going to host you know people in here we're going to have music and the limitations of what that meant the regulations that were immediately thrown on us the feeling that we would never be legitimized because we were not this standalone big shiny you know both finished tidy clean contained ideal of what a, a restaurant and what a, a what a, 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 a like a space needed to be made you buy into this dream that well if we don't have this brick and mortar if we don't have this restaurant then we're not legitimized and we're not looked as being serious food we're not being looked at as serious restaurateurs we're not being looked at as serious business people we're not being looked at as anyone that could just open up you know start cooking out of their own kitchen and I and I just want to get all of that thinking and throw it out the fucking window and just get us back to thinking that the fundamental of why we do what we do is to bring people back together. Mm -hmm. It's to bring people together to a table and to have conversation and to share our moments of why we eat, you know, and Saturday dinette was that for me. And it was that for our community in the East end of Toronto we opened not knowing anyone in the city. We opened that doors with literally meeting people where we were had worked with or that we had lived in our in this communal building and they came on and helped us with the opening of this restaurant. You know, I was on my hands and knees carving out the tile to bring in new tile. The things we do for the commitments and things that we believe in and love is an un and is is un, unbelievable how far we'll go. And sometimes it's ungratifying work because no one's gonna pat you on the back and say, good job and thank you for doing what you do. But you know who did was the folks that were in the senior center that was up the street from Saturday Dinette that would come and say, I have a dollar 25, can I get a breakfast plate? Absolutely, take a seat at the bar, we got you. Mm-hmm. We were a hub for young women to come and learn and understand soft and and physical skills of the kitchen. Soft skills meaning how to open a bank account, how to, to dress the part, how to feel like you are more than just a warm body in a space that is gonna give you a paycheck at the end of the work week. We are about creating a space for families to come and embrace their birthdays, their anniversaries, their unions, their, their just their night out. We were there for us to, to, to grow and to learn as myself and my partner. We didn't know what we were doing, but we let go of this feeling to control and mold it into this perfect, busy, bustling, making money machine. And it was like this place that still to this day, after being closed for five years, people still send me emails and say to me, you don't know how important what you did. You don't know how important your space was for me. You don't know how much that changed my life. Mm. So in this thinking of what a brick and mortar is and what's supposed to be in this community, 
activism that that comes with in this intention, like sometimes the intention is not what you even think or even what you have any control of it becoming or being. It will take its its own space up because it needs to be there. And you are along for the journey. You are along to to continue to open the space and welcome those in that would like to be a part of it. And you have a role. You have a you have an intention and a purpose and a responsibility as 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 someone that's able to do this because this is a gift. It's a gift to be able to do this this type of work. You know, we work hard, and but it's a gift to be able to 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 one know my worth. And to, to then to actually put it into action. Absolutely. These actionable steps take time. They take lots of moments where I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I don't know who's going to re- receive it. And I don't even know if it's needed, mm. but I'm going to do it anyways. And true, yeah. true was absolutely that. And unfortunately, and not unfortunately, I take that back because it's been almost three years since we've been shut, you know, this conversation could have been very different for me. If you would have asked me a year and a half ago, how I felt about my ex former partners, but fortunately I was able to be a part of something that for me will always be the life changing moment for me where I took back a bit of, of myself because that's what true, true brought to me. Let me zoom us out and zoom us back in because I know these stories super intimately. But with with Saturday, um, what you shared there is so so crazily important. And so please allow me uh, to reflect it, which is stepping into creating a space of community and gathering and nourishment without all of the quote unquote tools that are painted onto us um, by systems, by chain dominance. When I say chain dominance, I mean everything from your fast food chains to your fast casual chains have really taken over the landscape across um, most of Canada and a lot of North America, whereas the quality is always consistent. The service is exactly the same, but the personality, the culture, the diaspora has all gone you know, the way of the dinosaur in those spaces. And you also don't feel free to be yourself. So you feel that you must dress a certain way. You must speak in a certain way. You must enjoy the same things that are being offered, whether that be football wings and beer so you sort of miss the opportunity to be part of a cultural experience. The point is that that's the culture that is demanded on that space or on that block. So when we build spaces very similar, it's a, what does the neighborhood need? And if that's a space to do a trans drag show because they can't find another space to do it, then well, that's, that's what, what we're doing is. on Tuesday nights. Absolutely. And on Wednesdays, if it's a senior's breakfast and there isn't a budget, well, then that's what it needs. And yeah. so... Again, I just want to reflect from the community standpoint because I met a lot of the folks that have spent time with you there. The importance of the folks that are raised within our service industry by the Suzanne Bars of the world, by my teams, by the people who create these community spaces, whether it's the ramen shop, the noodle house, the Ethiopian restaurant, they're all critical. They're critical to the growth of a community and to being seen. I see you move from the dinette and that very intentional space into what's next for me. And I think all of us who've closed a business at some point, the first time you close it, there's this deep feeling of loss and failure, even if it's not a failure. And that that haunts us because of the same capitalism systems that you talk about. Absolutely. I didn't work hard enough. What did I do right. wrong? 
what, 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 what didn't I see? Didn't I not ask the right questions? Did I not provide enough um, foresight into planning? Um, how can I never do this again? And do I want to do this again? Exactly right. So I want to then take us in and honor this next segment. When we come back with Suzanne Bard, this is better around the experience on True True because I believe it, it encompasses everything from mental health to the systems to what we know needs to happen versus what is possible. Uh, so thank you for keeping it locked with us. Uh, so much love, Chef. So happy to be here with you. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Better. So in our first couple of segments, we talked creativity, we talked demystification of food, we talked diaspora, we talked using it as our own safe haven and the safe haven of many others. And that is really a big focus. And I've seen my guest, Chef Suzanne Barr, use that in brick and mortar. When we say that, I think a lot of people miss that terminology. When we say brick and mortar work, we mean physically inhabiting a space and creating it out of bricks and mortar to do the work versus doing it in all the other spaces that are important. We can do event-based things. We can write books. We can do exactly what we're doing right now and speaking to radio and pod. Those are important. But in our both of our opinions, and I, I know we share this, is boots on the ground and brick and mortar work helps change the face of communities. Now, Suzanne, you've been able to do that on multiple occasions. Yeah. And one of my favorite quotes from you the continued toxic elements that dwell in the industry are lack of support for mental health, unjust workspaces, sexism, systemic biases and prejudices, labor infractions and limited renters' rights. The culture is global. Rebuilding and reimagining the industry is where the work begins. And just before we dig in, when we say systemic biases and prejudices, I know that that can be pretty wordy and heavy. All that means is that the systems that are in place and that means from production of food to provision of any sort of a service to governmental pieces that help regulate our industry are biased and prejudiced. And we say they're biased against women, against people of color, against anybody who is non-cis white, essentially, just to help to like break that piece down so we can really dig into it. Because I think we throw those words systemic injustice around a lot. That's all that means is that we are part of a system. And if that system isn't treating everybody in an equitable manner, then it is biased. And so yeah, absolutely. I love all of this work <laughs> that True True did, um, particularly in its training and its employment practices, which mirrors some of our own. But to tell us why, how, all of the things. Yeah. You know, to add to one more thing around the systemic conversation, I think that we also have to, we cannot forget of the, the 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 means and the understanding of capitalism you know mm. it's like it's 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 like this false reality that we've all been bamboozled to think that if you work really hard you're going to get everything you want it's the american dream it's the north american way it's what you will get you will have your cars you will have a, a abundance of cash flow and an abundance of access to more cash flow but it's this system that is that's rooted back into the earliest forms of, you know, genocide, the earliest forms of how the patriarchal systems have just like continuously held us down. And I, 
you know, I saw a lot of that in the work that I experienced at True True. But to talk about this, I just want to preface is, is um, it's, it has some pain because there was a lot of, for me, I think there was a lot of uh, unstable conversations that I was having with myself, even to even approach this, this opening of this restaurant. Um, I felt kind of in a backed into a corner that I needed to do it. There was a lot of hype. There was a lot of anticipation. There was a lot of desire for me to do this project. And I think there was a lot of missing reasonings why I needed to do this. And I just went with it. And I think sometimes when you just do things out of the, out of the, the means of just doing it and not reconnecting with yourself of why your passion is driving you to do something, things get lost in translation. Um, but true, true was was a it's, was going to be this incredible experimental, but not experimental. It was just going to we were going to sc- scratch what everybody was talking about of who we could hire, how we can run, how we can operate, what what this building meant, the impact and the power of being on a historical street in the city of Toronto, where the, one of the first Black-owned businesses is if existed maybe two blocks away from me, and the power of what that meant for us now being like the, the only Black-owned and Black-running business in that neighborhood. The history of what downtown Toronto, ever, the, 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 look, the makeup, the look, what people were expecting from the food because of my partners and what they had once done and what True True Pizza had been before. But True True Diner was, was really going to allow us to get outside of the mold. It was going to be um, your neighborhood, but because it's not really a neighborhood. That's that downtown area where folks that live there have lived there, whether they're young professionals, whether they've been there for generations, whether they are um, in between waiting for something to take them to the next. But True True was going to open up um, a women's hub. It was going to be a safe space for young women. New immigrants were to come and to be a part of us. We, we were limited to anybody's visible and invisible disabilities. We were just we were just ready to welcome the free ample space for feedback on both ends. Like, how are we doing as managers and how do you feel in our space? Do you want to be here as much as we want you to be here? And why do you want to be here? And having that much like, you know, choice to give, to offer to your people, that makes people scared. That actually puts people's backs up. And that also makes people feel like there's a loss of power and a loss of control. And that is, for me, the fundamental downfall of what happened with True True is that the powers to be that took the power back and took the control back felt their loss of controlling this. And that they saw that when when we were opening the doors and that more than 80% of our staff were folks of color that were coming from all walks from new immigrants to, so, to, to folks that were just excited to finally be given a chance to tell their story and to be given a place on a roster, on a team, and to be considered for a role because maybe they, for someone, for some reason, someone felt like they couldn't do the job. And that was something that I was amply proud of, but not proud of because I was like, look at this good work that we're doing, but because 
I got out of my own biases that I had in going into the industry because when I started in industry, I'm like, well, you don't have the skills, then I can't expect that you can do the job. And even though I wanted to train from the ground up, there your unconscious biases will always sneak up and, and find you. And that yeah. for me was huge in, in, in looking at my team and saying, wow, like, this is, this is not about me. This is not about what I thought this, this team needed to look like. This team is developing into what it has to be. And we had some stumbles in the beginning, but like, I think that's with everything. I think like with everything, people have to find their space, settle in, get uncomfortable, to get comfortable, to, to bump and to groove and to then find their, their rhythm. And we found our rhythm. And that is basically what took us to having a night in my heart and in my mind that I'll never forget. And that was during the month of February last year or of 2020, we did an event called For the Love Of. Mm. And the connection of what For the Love Of was about, it was for the love of, 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 of food. It was for the love of the culture. It was for the love of this industry. It was for the love of creating. And I were, had the opportunity to work with chefs that I highly respect, Adrian Forte and Chef, Chef Bashir Mounier. And I invited them in to help me create a menu that was like anything either of us had ever created. You know, even though that space had been, you know, open for business, we had been open and operational for months to be, but some folks that were coming in had never seen anything like that. Right. They hadn't seen the collaboration of the three of us, and then they hadn't seen the 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 night and the music, the foresight into thinking about how spoken word would be this element and how this would become like this new epicenter. This would become this new place that people can come to, to get a, a taste of what culture is and history is because you look on the wall and on the wall are images of the civil rights movement on the walls right. are images of the history of what diner culture of what eating culture was all about. And that for me was, was, was my tribute, my own personal journey of understanding it for myself, because it's one thing to be, um, you know, to, 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 to be in a space of agency and understanding your role in, as an agent. But now it's in the space of like, wow, I have my own teachings. I have my own learnings to do in this. And it was this night. It was then the, the, the conversations that I heard and I, and I learned and I saw and I experienced from this evening to then the night, the day that we decided that we had to shut the doors right. and that we no longer could continue. And that much, that much intention, that much like foresight, that much care, compassion, that scares people. That pushes people into this weird world of like, no, 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 no. You know too much. You can't take that. You can't, we're not going to allow for you to have this space. And we were asked to be, to remove all of our belongings from the property. Right. And so just to get clear for folks who don't know Chef Bashir, et cetera, we're talking about a very specific tip of the spear. We've owned in on this particular story, this particular culture, this space is aligned. We are here. We are strong. And this is just the beginning, right? 
And so when that beginning is created, suddenly and very abruptly, that space is taken away. Literally within, within days. You know, it, um, it was letting go. It was having the foresight and the feeling that letting something go to have something more come back. To be able to speak about it in this way, but knowing that I, I never could have imagined that I would be not crying, not curdled over, and the challenges that I felt because I was so exhausted. I was out of gas. Mm-hmm. As advocates, as leaders, we are, when, when rest is necessary, when we need to slow down, and what yet we don't allow ourselves this is where the detriment of our, our own understanding of what is our worth. Yes. If we can't even give ourselves that space to rest and to understand. And I took it that now, obviously, I, my body and my mind and my spirit needed rest from this, this much intention because this was, this was a constantly pulling and, and giving and receiving and offering so much and trying to make people understand, not the, not so much the customers, it was really our partners trying to get them to understand. Sure, sure. And, you, and that is often a very losing battle, particularly with people who are so entrenched in the systems themselves. So not to ever make excuses for anyone. We're all responsible for our own actions, our own learnings, our own embedding of the work and, and pushing things forward. But I think what I want to pull out of what you just said as well is, the rest portion is critical. So for anybody listening, and we know that's a lot of leaders, um, when you decide to take a knee, it can be destabilizing and fearful for people around you because they've never seen it before. But what it does is creates this gigantic space for many people to step in and support you and the things that you believe in and that you care about. There's an opportunity there for you and it's a great stabilizer because yeah. it allows, it allows, and we're, we're forced to take a knee. We, we don't, you can't push white hot for that long and then secondary, what I hear is, of course, forever, the butterfly effect. In the spaces that we create, in the events that we've Absolutely. done together, what you do continually in the book, which I'm going to heavily encourage people to pick up, which is My Aki Tree, a chef's memoir on finding home in the kitchen, which fills in a lot of the gaps that you're, you're hearing in today's episode, which we've incredibly come to the end of. But all of these things we discussed today are part of an awakening. And that awakening requires action. And that action requires accomplices, not just advocates, but people who will stand in the work. Um, It is a great honor of mine to be able to stand with you from time to time. And it's been so wonderful to have you here. Of course, exceeding all expectations as always. Chef Suzanne Barr, thank you. Thank you. This has been better and what an absolute pleasure today to have spent time with Chef Suzanne Barr. We got to talk about everything from the diaspora of cuisine, the story, the history, the creation of community spaces, of cultural spaces, of heavy political spaces, of inclusion, of allowing people to see themselves in work they didn't believe that they were invited to. And within that creates real change. This has been better. We were with Chef Suzanne Barr. And if you are on the podcast, this is where we turn the page. <laughs> the next chapter is now beginning. Suzanne, 
I mean, I know the tendrils that come off of all of these stories, but we're currently talking about True True. And I would love us to continue that part of the discussion as it's alive for you. The doors close. The partners say, no, not here, not now. Say more. You know, I take a breath because I I have to release a lot of what I feel is a lot of pain that, you know, I still hold on to. You know, like with anything that we create from our, our emotional connection to things that we create because we're inspired or things that we create that we're passionate about or things that we create because of our lucid dreams, whatever that is, that creation of something holds this, 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 this power, holds this bit of energy that, you know, can be so intense, it can be so tight and as much practice and, and I really do think understanding that was such a time in my life where like I tried to forget a lot because it was so fast and it felt so, you know, unclear of, of what was, why did I need to go through that? But mm. I think why I needed to go through it was for me to recognize my own, my own issues and where I was struggling with my own mental health. And right. I remember calling you, you know, Mark, I remember calling you like we were scheduled to do an event together. And I remember calling you and I just said, brother, I don't have it in me. I don't have it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm past my, my point of capacity. Like I'm into, into a place that is so deep and so dark that I don't know how to get out. And I don't think I can show up in anything that I've ever done with you in the way that I know that you would honestly would want me to be there. And, you know, it taught me that taking real time to know this and listen to myself and to slow down and to not feel like I had to be racing into the next and not that I, that I regret anything. I don't, I think it was a gift to do that. But I think it was also this gift to know that I too need to slow down and I too need a bit of healing and I too need to, to just take a, take a, take a look and to see what is, what am I looking for in this process? And what am I looking to, am I, am I giving and am I receiving? Am I, am I really being authentic? And I couldn't answer those questions. Right. You know, like I remember, you know, it was like maybe a month after we shut the doors and I remember laying in my bed and I couldn't lay on my back because I was so uncomfortable. Like this, this discomfort was like, it was moving me in a way that I couldn't even sleep. And I turned back to a practice that I hadn't practiced in years a bit of meditation. And it started with two minutes. I was like, I think I can do two minutes. And two minutes turned to three minutes. And three minutes turned to four minutes. And I kept pushing myself and just allowing myself, not so much pushing, just allowing myself to just take my time with it. Mm -hmm. 
and not rush through this process of meditation. I'm going to meditate. Everyone says meditation is so important. You got to do it. You got to do it. 30 push-ups, then four minutes of meditation. Exactly. Get up in the morning, look out the window, meditate. And I was like, yeah, I don't have time for that. Like, I don't have time for that. <laughs> you definitely have time for it. But I do have time and I made time for that. And I slowed down. And it may have taken me three months to get to that point where I was able to actually pick my head up and get on get on a Zoom call with the whole team from, from True True and reconnect with them and talk to them and tell them really truly how I was doing. Mm -hmm. Because as a leader, we don't ever want to show our sides that we are struggling. And, you know, especially knowing that like people are looking to us, our team are looking to us to be the strength, the, 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 the strength that they need to keep going and the reason behind why they show up. And I didn't want to show them this side of, of weakness of myself, but it was not weakness. This was my truth. And yes. more of them were grateful for me to be able to just say that and to say, thank you. Because we thought, how, how are you doing? Yeah, And exactly that allowed right. them to have this space of like, like this, this in, incredible, like exchange of like, well, then we will be a stand for you. We will show up for you. You've showed up is. for us here. We are showing up for you. That's, that's exactly it. And so there's a critical piece in there around mental health in particular um, and leadership and that this analogy <clears throat> is the analogy. So this is the one, right? Which is a, the toxicity of the systems have created leaders that are unflappable. And when we find flaw, they become pariahs. So it's, that's unattainable. And first, it's not real. Of course, every single leader that we've ever worked with has what we would call quote unquote flaws or has energy <laughs> levels that are not forever sustainable. And so what you do by showing folks what you're going through as a leader is you give permission. You give permission and you create this gigantic amount of space. Because you're saying there is a depth and a breadth to humanity that lives within myself as a leader, with all of us as people. And what we fear is that we will then give up some of our power. What we realize, having gone through it, is it increases our power as a team yes. exponentially. Yes. Because you don't know how to support somebody if they don't admit to what they need support in. Yes. Period. Yes. Period. Period. Yes. They can't. Nobody knows how to show up for you if you can't tell them. And telling them isn't angrily yelling, I can't believe you don't know what to do. <laughs> and, the most, the, and the most important to take on and to add on to that is that if I don't know how to support myself, how can I ask anyone to support me? Because I don't even show up for myself. And mm -hmm. I hadn't been showing up for myself. Yeah. That's the critical one. And so also when we get that spaciousness... It's terrifying because we're like, all I know is one speed. Yes. I only know how to work until there's more work and create more work and create more opportunity because that's attached to money. And without money, I can't continue to support the people I love. And here I am in the hamster wheel you created for yes. me. That is indentured slavitude that continues from the checkout counter all the way through to the, the person selling stocks for the big guy. Like it's all the same. It's all the exact same thing. And you might have nicer trinkets and toys and a couple extra bedrooms, but it's the same system. So what True True stood for, what we stand for at A Better Life, with the things we stand for are disrupting those systems entirely. 
saying with community dollars and community input and community support and multi-tier support, we can not only create thriving systems and businesses that pay living wages, that have mental health support, that have full medical support, that have counseling, that have all of the things attached to them that we wish we could have had. Not only is that easy to do, it's in the long run more financially viable. It's incredibly important for the community and hiring people who have traditional barriers. You retain so, so, so much more and it's all connected. Absolutely. It's all critically connected. So you have the recentering phone call where you're like, hey, (laughs) you're not going to believe this shit, but I fucking need sleep too. And so I just slept for two months uncomfortably (laughs) and here I am. And, and here then we what go. Happens? And you know, we um, we released a statement. You know, we were attempting to try to take back the the space ourselves. We were attempting mm-hmm. to take back True True and to uh, to 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 run it. We were um, we had raised some money. We had some investors, and uh, because our partners were also the owners of the property, it then takes on the bigger conversation of land rights and who owns what properties and lands and, you know, and because they own the property and they own that space, they basically explained that they were not interested in a restaurant in that space. And we would need to, you know, find a new space or present a new business plan idea to inhabit that space. Maybe a nail shop they suggested which was like, (laughs) and under gaslighting page three, see (laughs) exactly. See true. true. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Well, okay. So then we, we move on, right. And and we move on having, you know, shuttered seven businesses in my time all by some sort of a choice or a negotiation or an agreement of some sort. It, it hurts. And it, it's, you know, in my experience, hurt partners more than it's hurt me because I had had some experience with it and their identity was tied to it. And this is a critical issue, right? Which is the things that True True represents, as an example, were never tied to a physical location. No. They're tied to thousands of years of greatness, yeah. of, of like fire, of intentionality. And like all of those things are tied into what True True was, which is an external reflection of the things that you and the people that you walk alongside with care about. So what are the iterations in which that shows up now? And what are the ones it's going to show up in? Yeah. You know, this generates this idea of generational wealth and this idea, this idea of generational um, growth and, and, and expectation has, you know, allowed me to, you know, um, take a step back from the industry you know, right. me personally speaking, taking a step back from the industry and to reimagine. And this is something that I feel like I've, you know, like the many words that we saw up in 2020, 2020 pivot and, and reimagining, but really truly reimagining um, what, what it meant to, for me in my life to actually make time for the things that maybe I needed to focus on. And that turned me to writing and that turned me into uh taking a pen to a piece of paper that took me to making time more than five minutes of meditation and committing to doing that and, and, and doing that in, in spaces that took me to, you know, um, 
picking up the phone and calling a friend and not just sending a text message or sending a like on Instagram, using social media as a way to stay connected to people and nothing against social media. But I do think that it's another part of this capitalist way of thinking that we need to have it in our life in order to feel connected. Whereas there's, you know, due to COVID, it has really allowed this space between in the most um, detrimental way. But I think that I found many ways to be able to get past that and, and find that reconnect. I wrote letters. I wrote a letter. Beautiful. <laughs> I wrote a letter to, you know, my mom. I wrote a letter to myself. Um, still haven't opened it yet. <laughs> Sitting on it. <laughs> Figured I'd like, yes. you know, wait on it. You know, Julia Campbell, morning pages for those that might know, know her work and knowing the artist's way and, you know, finding my, my connection to that, that creative being that does rest in within me and understanding yeah. the honor that's needed to put into that. So, you know, I have, I had been, you know, once True True closed, you know, and while True True was still open, I was juggling a lot at the same time. I was juggling, you know, this book, um, it was called something else. <laughs> we had to change the name for, for, for some reasons, but I was drug. I was really challenged with carving out real time to finish this book. And my editor was like, you need to finish this book. Right. And, and that was, this was the time to do that. And silence allowed me to silence my, my mind and to silence my body and to slow myself up to do that. And I think that it's, um, it was good work. It was, it was so necessary and I'm so grateful for it. I'm grateful for people like yourself, um, people like Joshna who invited me over and made me curry and said, mm. you need curry in your life and eating curry with her and putting it in my freezer and having it weeks later and remembering that, you know, in my mom's eyes, curry heals everything. And I truly believe that, you know, I can still smell the curry stains on, on the wall in my parents' kitchen and that the, the good oil that sits on the countertop and what that means to my heart and my memories of my, my parents and cooking, but finishing my Aki tree and putting my all into that and telling a bit of my story because, you know, you, you're, you're so mindful of how much you share yourself because of you want to kind of control the narrative a bit. And I felt like controlling the narrative was from the advice of the many people that were in my life. Like don't tell too much legally don't tell too much because you don't know what could happen. And I was like, well, shit. Okay. And I didn't hold back in the book. I really kind of told as much as I felt like I needed to tell That's and speaking great. your truth is necessary. No matter how mm. you do that and everybody, you know, like always fine. And, you know, I remember sitting with the legal team from my publishing company and them saying, well, can you say this? Can we say this? Can we not say this? I don't know if we should include this, but feeling like, I needed to say it and them standing behind me and saying, okay, we're going to go with it. And my Aki tree is, is absolutely that finding myself back in the words that have been written. This story was written before I had even approached it. This story was, you know, not even my story to tell so much of it is my mom's story that was never yeah. shared with me that I, I heard through stories of from her siblings, but it gave me a lot of understanding of who I am now as a mother, as a daughter, as a sister, as a peer, as a leader, as an advocate, 
as a creative being and in the many other roles and titles and, you know, that I'm going to, to, to have in my lifetime, it's, you know, not complete because I feel like no ever story is ever complete, but I do feel like it is the next frontier for me of where I'm at and where I'm going to it. Um, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do Mm. because I had to go to some of the darkest places in the stories that I just needed to, to just, you know, control, you know, control because control meant that I can be not just the narrator, but I can also be the characters in the story and I can tell it to protect me and I can protect myself for as much as I needed to, because nobody else was going to do that. But, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> it's not the way to live. It doesn't work also. It doesn't there's work. Thing, there's a thing around, you know, really trying to hold tight and um, having been through some really rough bumps with the media, you know, you are given advice and that advice is just to be quiet and it'll move through the news cycle. And our, um, when I say our, I say you and I and, and all of our friends, our strength doesn't lie in quiet our strength uh, lies in being able to say exactly what's going on and so i think we formulate a way to be able to share our truth without (laughs) pointing fingers because all we're doing is pinching the screen and zooming out all of these experiences are not unique every single one of them is multiplied a million times over on this continent and every other. So if I can take my power back by zooming out and then digging into the system and talking about the system and talking about the way things handle it, it's not, (laughs) some folks were like, we know who you're talking about. I'm like, no, you don't. No, no, you don't actually because I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the shared and cumulative experience of abuse of media, of abuse, of people who hold power, of abuse, of people needing to sell clicks to, you know, justify their own journalism. Those sorts of things is not a specific incident for me. That was the inspiration. (laughs) My inspiration comes from my own pain, my own struggle, my own smearing, all of the things that have, you know, then had long tales of pain for what we do. But instead of focusing on that, what is the lesson? What is the learning? Ooh, vet heavier. Yes. You yes. know, think deeper about who you spend your time in relationship with, whose approval Ooh, you seek. Yes. Who do you actually? Who do you actually care about? And for me, the distillation is very, very, very simple. And you've seen it walking my streets with me. Yes. That. That's the. That's where I need approval. Is in the people that are on the receiving end of our service and our love. That comes in a container of food. It comes in a container of employment. Advocacy in the rooms. We're in the spaces. You were just in Europe. Like when we travel, when I travel on UN business and work with folks. Speaking at the G20 last year, I'm not speaking about agriculture. (laughs) I'm speaking about racism, misogyny, poverty as an act of violence. And people in suits are like, you know, this is a business conference, right? I'm like, yeah, this yes, is my this business. This is exactly where it needs to be heard. <laughs> this is my business. <laughs> yeah, this is my business. Well, this is my life. Yes. So we take all of those things. And if not for those yes. struggles, if not for those attacks, if not yes. for those misperceptions and manipulations and attacks, without those, 
those conversations can't be distilled and formulated into the my Aki trees or for me a scribbling on a hotel napkin that turns into a microphone. Those things are are our weapons. Absolutely. And those weapons are also, and I know this to be true of you, mine are entirely shaped around love. Yes. Which seems counterintuitive to folks who don't <laughs> understand what the fuck love is. Love is, yes. <laughs> no, love is yes. my greatest weapon. You cannot yes. harm me. I am unharmable yes. because there is nothing secret. Everything that I have that you could dig into a closet, trust I've shared 10x on Instagram, dog. Have a look. You know what I mean? Like, Can I so- just throw a hug to you through this microphone? Because, yes, you asked me the question when the last time I was with you, what is this? Why, why would you? What is this for for you? What mm. are you taking from this? Mm. And I sat with that. I don't even think I answered you. I, I sat with that for many months. And in this moment, like you just opened up, you just unlocked that feeling of, yeah, it was for the love, mm. you know, which was the significance of that night, this, this one incredible, the last night event that we did at the space. But it was, it, it's, it's for the love of everything. It's for the every, love of, of the Saturday dinettes to the True Trues, to the Gladstone Hotels, every project to the Mayaki Tree, to everything that I've had the opportunity, the experience, the the offerings to be a part of, you know, like, you know, having, having walked in these shoes and having walked these steps thus far in this life, I just, you know, I'm just so grateful that I can, I can bring it back to something just so pure and so real and so honest to what gets, that wakes me up. And that is love, you know? And, and I, and for some people that might be like, Oh gosh, really? No, but for real, it is. Yes. No, but for real, it is. Like, Gosh, really? <laughs> like, for real. Like, it is just that, it is that complex. It's just that simple. It's that, it's that depth. It's that texture. It's all of the levels of love and not understanding love and not understanding what it looks like, what it's supposed to feel like, what it's supposed to mean, and what it's supposed to sound like. Because it doesn't always sound like the way that you are receiving or even hearing in the moment that you're receiving and hearing it. You're yes. like, wow, like this is, this is, this is a, a greater feel. Like this is a vibration, like no vibration I have ever experienced. And that is some of the, the complexity of what love is about and how yeah. we process it as these meaning making machines that we are, we are constantly trying to make things mean things for us yeah, and feel something for us. And connecting it for to a, to a something that then can take us to a reason why that happened. Yeah. And sometimes that reason's not going to become clear, and 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 it's going to stay blurry. It's going to stay out of focus. It's going to not maybe come to you in the moment because when you asked me that, like it wasn't clear to me why I needed to go and push in that way. <laughs> but in this moment, right now. Yeah, it was very clear of, of how I received what you said to me and why it has, it has this everlasting effect to me in this exact moment. So thank you. you what know, an honor. Thank you for to, reminding me. Yeah, always, always here for you. And, you know, what's coming really present for me as we round the corner. And I know we've, we've got stuff today. And I'll share what our stuff is in a second because I think it's resonant to this conversation. But 
um, when you take away the anger that they expect you to have, the barbs that they expect you, the venom they expect you to respond with, when you take that away, you take your power. When you say to them, I wish you so well. I wish you the peace that I wish myself. And I mean it deeply. You don't even have to say the second part because you already know it. I I just wish you peace because I can see whatever's happening for you is not mine. It doesn't belong to me. It's not mine at all. And God, I'm just so happy that I don't have to be around it. (laughs) 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 So, you know, literally double deuces. I'm I'm going to be out now. So we are moving um, into New York continually. I've been working there for five years, as you know. um, Yes. Got to connect with your sister briefly uh, there. And, you know, the work that we're we're doing is in Brownsville, and it's around specifically a partner called Collective Fair around the diaspora of African cuisine and how it influences in Jamaican cuisine and how it influences and how it creates comfort for people who are. So the people we serve in the downtown east side are predominantly based out of white or indigenous cultures who are struggling very hard, right? So we cater directly to that. We've got indigenous menu items, et cetera. As we move into Brownsville, into Brooklyn, into New York, working with Collective Fair, who we're joining in 25 minutes from this, uh, they're partners on the ground that come from it, come from recidivism, come from these spaces that we've got to do work with. And I shit you not, I'm so excited to put all of us together. You know, the, the discussions and the tendrils are so long. Let me distill it into that, right? Like yes. In the first yes. meeting of Suzanne Barr and me, is like, oh, I, I fuck with you. We've got work to do. <laughs> Five years later, we're discussing different nodes of conversations and experience that is shared from a Zoom out perspective. And I know that we'll continue to walk this path together as long as we're walking it and for generations to come. Um, so I, I want to just share gratitude again for your time, for your energy, for your love. Um, I, is there a word called peerdom? Is that it? Or we just say friendship? You know what I mean? Like, peerdom. Peerdom, <laughs> it, it feels very woke. <laughs> it feels like that's the new like, Let you me know, just word that, that the kids are that. saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a Fortnite skin. It has nothing to do with, with the energy that I have. Um, I love you. I appreciate you. I love you. you. I appreciate you. you. I so, so appreciate for this opportunity to just, you know, just you know, talk, to reflect and to, mem- you know, just remember, you know, how important that to, to do these things, you know, when I say these things, and, and that is to be able to share these shared thoughts and to carving out time, real honorable time and to um, invest in these relationships and these friendships and these conversations, because investing in these conversations are investing into a future that is quite possible in your life and the many that are going to take this conversation and it might resonate with them. It may be, you know, something that they're like passing on to someone else, but whatever that might be, you know, take our words, heed to what feels right and real for you and understanding that, you know, the power of, you know, our truth, listening, um, holding space agency around, creating spaces, safe spaces for the ones that we, that we know are in need of that, the many people that are in need of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, this, this work is, 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 is so fast and there's so much still to be done. And it's so much time that we have and don't believe this thing that there's not enough time in the day to do the things 
the time of the day that you have to do is the time of the day that needs to be done. And once it's complete, it is complete. And there is another day ahead to complete the next taking on. And I truly believe that. And, you know, to every moment that we've shared together from sharing these glam tents in this amazing, beautiful farmlands of Ontario. Yes. To the streets. Shooting shotguns? Yeah. (laughs) I could not. (laughs) Right? Could not to just, you know, seeing you and all that you are doing right now. Thank you. Thank you, Mark, and to your whole team. And I look forward to being a part of whatever is, is already written for us in our very, very near future. Yes. Yes, beautiful summation. So much love. Um, tomorrow is indeed another day. Uh, folks, this has been better. You are on the 12-inch extended Mega Mix Remix Club yes. edit. <laughs> From Bad Boy Records. Um, my name is Mark Brand. As always, we've been with Chef Suzanne Barr. And Chef seems like such a small title. We have been with the creator, Suzanne Barr. Uh, and what a, what a wonderful way to spend the day or to start it even. So wherever you're listening, wherever you consume, share away, pick up the book. All the socials are going to be in the link. Um, Can't wait to see you again in real life, my friend. Lots of love. Lots of love.